Well, we got issues. We've established that over the last couple of weeks. If you've been here, if you haven't, I'll kind of recap quickly for you. But we've talked about how we have daddy issues when it comes to how we relate to God as a father. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's informed by our relationship with our earthly fathers. And then last week, we talked about the fact that we've got authority issues because no human being ever wants to just naturally submit to authority. We all rebel against that and we all try to act like we're autonomous, which means to self-govern. But I told you last week that God never created an autonomous creature, ever, never has, never will. Because God is the one who governs, he is God, he is our father. And us as human beings, it actually is to our good if we will submit to him. And that's what this whole series is about called Our Father, because we want us to think rightly about who God is when we think about God. And I've shared with you the quote from A.W. Tozer several times now that what is most important about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. And so our whole point of doing this series is to help us to think rightly about who God is, because the primary image that he gives us of himself is a father. And so we've been talking through that, discussing, looking primarily at the Lord's Prayer to see what that tells us about God as a father. But before we jump into the scriptures today, would you pray with me and ask God to bless our time together? Father, thank you for who you are. You are God. You are in heaven. And we want your name to be made much of. We want your kingdom to come, your will to be done. And God, your will ultimately is for us to become like Christ, to not have the same, obviously, substance that he has, but his status to be like him. And so, God, I pray as we open up your word today that you would help that to be accomplished. We know, God, that if you don't open our eyes, you don't open our ears, then we will never see, we'll never hear, we'll never understand. And so I ask you to do that now as we open up your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we've been hanging out for the last few weeks. We're going to start there again today, kind of go through the next few parts of the Lord's Prayer. I've been telling you this isn't a series on prayer per se, but we've just been looking at what is now famously called the Lord's Prayer to see what that tells us about God as a Father. And so we're going to start there again. Then we'll go one chapter over to Matthew chapter 7 just to kind of make the point of one of the things that Jesus discusses in Matthew 6. Then we'll go to Hebrews chapter 12, which is in the back part of your Bible. And so you get through all the letters. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Do a U-turn, come back a little bit, all right? So Matthew 6, then 7, then Hebrews chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, this is the famous Lord's Prayer, and this is what it says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So verses 11 through 13 are the ones we're primarily gonna cover today as we continue to talk through this but that comes off the basis of the first few verses there when it says, our Father in heaven. And I've told you that the primary aspect about having God as a Father is twofold. One, he is a Father, which means he feels great affection for us. God loves us. But he's our Father who is in heaven. So if he's in heaven, we're on earth, that means naturally he has authority over us. 
So the two aspects that we've been looking at is that God has affection for us and God has authority over us. Those two aspects brought together in perfect unity, not half and half, but full and full, are what it means to have God as a father. It means to have affection and to have authority. And this week, we're going to see that those two same aspects occur again in verses 11 through 13. And so in this prayer, Jesus tells us to pray for God to give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So give and forgive. Those two talk about the affection of God towards us. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So those two talk about the authority over us. So let's start with the first two. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice that Jesus is telling us to pray and ask God for what we need. He's, telling, he's instructing us, hey, pray for God to give you your daily bread. And theologians have rightly cued in on that word daily because daily means we need it every day, right? And the idea of it is, is that God never gets tired of us asking him for what we need. God is not annoyed by our asking. Jesus tells us to ask. Now he does say, give us this day our daily bread. Notice he doesn't say, give us this day our daily bins, right? Or, or whatever we might fill that in, it's just bread. And so his basic needs here is what he's discussing. And Jesus later in Matthew chapter six says this when he talks about seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. All those things added to you. He says, I know you need food. I know you need shelter. I know you need clothing. Look at the birds. Not one sparrow has fallen to the ground without your father knowing. You don't think he knows what you need? He knows you need those things. So ask him. Now this brings up a question a lot of times that people ask is, well, if God knows what I need, then why do I even have to ask? And here's what I want to cue in on, because the point is not so much asking for your need. The point is having a conversation with your dad. The point is relating to God. Now, the word relationship, and we talk about relationships a lot around here because it's one of our four core values, gospel, relationships, obedience, works. And so the word relationship at its root is the word relate. If you go look that up in the definition, the word relate means to tell, to speak, so think about it like this. You cannot have a relationship without speaking. Men, that's important for us to know, right? That was like mildly funny. We know, we know just scientifically we've proven this, that ladies talk way more than men do. So just inherently, naturally, ladies are more bent towards relationships than men. It doesn't mean men aren't emotional and men aren't relational. It just means we're not as good at them. A lot of times because we don't talk. I joked when Lynn, and I've said this before, but Lindsay and I were dating. I said, let's go eat and then go to a movie. She's like, I don't want to go to a movie. And I was like, why? Because you can't talk at a movie. And I was like, that's exactly why I want to go to the movie <laughs> because we're not going to talk, right? Just hang out and be together. And so we work that out and then we talk and then we don't talk. And so the idea is Jesus is saying to us, talk to your dad, relate to him. This is why Jesus says earlier in Matthew 6, you don't have to use a lot of words. The point is not use a lot of words. The point is know that your father wants you to ask him for what you need because he's a good father. And then he also says, forgive us our debts. That word there, 
people have wrestled with, because if Jesus is telling us to pray this and the idea of it is pray daily, they've wrestled with the word forgive because forgiveness is a once for all thing. We get saved, we trust Jesus, we're saved, we're forgiven. We now live in a state of forgiveness. And what's interesting about this word, it's not written in the present tense, and if it were, it'd be referring to kind of a once final eschatological event of like we are saved, but this is written as what's called the aorist tense, which better uh, is understood of like a daily conversation. And so the idea of asking God to forgive us is not saying every day you need to get forgiven again. You can't lose your salvation because you didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it. And what he's saying here is how you relate to God is this daily asking for what you need and this daily getting right with him. This daily, we would better call this confession and repentance. Confession and repentance is ongoing. Because by definition, the word repentance means to turn and go in a different direction. And so there's gonna be times that we're, oh, I love you, God. And then Monday, oh, I don't know where God is. Oh, I love you, God. And right? And it's when you're walking away from him that you have to, oh, wow, I have a distant relationship with my dad. Doesn't mean the relationship's non-existent. What it means is I need to turn and relate to him again. There's some things I need to confess, some things I need to get right. Again, think about it in terms of marriage. Marriage is one of the primary motifs of the Bible. It begins with a marriage. It's gonna end with a marriage. When Lindsay and I got married, that was a once for all thing. We were married. I don't have to wake up every day and get married again. What I have to wake up every day is now commit to live out the values or the vows that I said that I would at my marriage. So I'm working on the relationship every day, which obviously always involves me confessing and repenting. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's just ran for her soul, but for me, it's on me to confess and repent. I'm just kidding. But, but you see what I'm saying? The idea is it's not that you don't have a relationship. It can just be strained. It can be broken. And so Jesus is telling us how to relate to our father, ask him for what we need and clear up what's going on. Have a conversation with him and say, I'm sorry. Now go one chapter to Matthew chapter seven. I just want to kind of drive this point home a little bit. Matthew chapter seven, verse 11. If I had more time, I'd get into the verses around this, but this is all part of the same sermon that Jesus is giving here on the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is Jesus talking. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much, what's that next word there? More. More. Now, if you're new, I'd like for you to call and respond. All right, so let's try that again. How much what? More. More. Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, if you know how to do it, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father who is in heaven know how to give good things to those who ask? In the verses immediately preceding this, Jesus tells us, ask, seek, knock, it will be provided for you. What father, if if a son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Jesus is saying, listen, Your heavenly father really knows how to give good things. More so than you and I ever would know how to give good things. And again, now that I have kids, and if you have kids, you can understand this. But even if you don't, you understand the principle that my two kids, my 14-year-old son, my 8-year-old daughter, I know it's on me to provide for them. I know that. They don't have to wake up every day and, you know, go work for their own food. Eventually they will, and that'll be a glorious day. But until that happens, that's on me. 
But you know what? I get joy out of feeding them. I get joy out of giving them what they need. Now, this daily bread thing, again, my daughter who is eight, she would think that her daily bread is Barbie's. So give us this day our daily Barbie. Baby, you don't get Barbie's daily. You get bread daily. But even then, eventually, at times, you get a little bit more than bread. And she doesn't have to twist my arm for that. And God is saying, if I know how to do that for my kids, if I have a desire to give them good things, how much more so does our Heavenly Father, who is not evil, know how to give good things? So he's a father. Come to him, knowing that he loves you, asking him for what you need, and clearing up things that are going on between you and him. You don't have to hide from him. Shocker, he knows it anyway. (laughs) Now let's get into the second part of that in Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to turn back there, but Jesus said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that one, I think helps us understand the authority of God. The other one's affection. This is authority. Why? First, Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not. What that means is God has the sovereign right to lead us. God has the sovereign right to tell us what to do. God has the sovereign right. No one has to give it to God. He has it. In the same way, I, as a father over my two kids, have the, I'm not sovereign, but I have the parental right to lead my kids. In fact, I would be a failure as a father if I didn't. So Jesus is teaching us how to pray, remember, which means how we relate to God, how we talk to God. And he's saying, pray like this, lead us not into temptation. Now, a couple things here, because this can be confusing at times, because it reads in the English like it says or is, you know, is pointing to that God is the active agent in leading us to temptation. So you think, okay, if, if God is not the one leading us to temptation, why in the world would Jesus tell us to pray us not to be led into temptation? The problem is, in this word here, it doesn't read that well in the English, But this word, lead us, is what is called a permissive imperative. The imperative mood is when you're talking in a command. And so Jesus tells us to pray like this, but it's written in a permissive, which means it would better be read in English, not let us be led into. Jesus is saying, pray for us not to be led into temptation. Why? Because God doesn't lead us into temptation. We wouldn't have to pray to God, lead us not in temptation because God's not the one leading us there. What Jesus is praying is for us to not be led into temptation. Now let's talk about that second part there because again, this can be confusing. That word there, temptation, in the Bible is the exact same Greek word as the word testing. In fact, you see it in James chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just kind of reference it for you. In James chapter 1, the half-brother of Jesus says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That word there, trial, same exact word as this word, temptation. So it can be used as a test, a trial, or a temptation. Later on in James chapter 1, I believe it's verse 13, Uh, James says this, let no one when he is tempted say God is tempting me because God can not be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That word there, tempt, exact same word as the word trial in verse two. 
So the same word can mean testing and it can mean temptation. So here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Jesus understands that God has the divine right to lead us into testing. But in our testing, Satan will try to lead us into temptation. Because every test of God has a built-in temptation of Satan. And so Jesus is saying, pray that we not be led into temptation, but we will be led into testing. And here's the good news. When we are led into temptation, then the second part or the last part of the prayer is deliver us from evil. So when you get into that situation of temptation, God also has the power to get you out. So what you see here is God's authority and God's power. And you need to understand those are not synonymous. Those are not the same things. Authority is the right to do it. Power is the ability to do it. So God has the right to lead us into testing. And in that testing, we will face temptation, but he also has the power to deliver us from it. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians when he talked about temptation. And this verse, I gotta be honest with you, a lot of times is so misused by Christians. And the reason why is because it's the same word. And so some Bibles translate it differently. Some read in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, he will not give you more than you can handle. But that context there is talking about temptation. He says, God will not give you more temptation that you can handle. He'll always provide a way out. In that temptation, he provides a way out to deliver you. But then people say, God will never test you beyond what you can handle. Can I just tell you something? Please don't ever say that to a person. Why? Because God will test you more than what you can handle. Straight up. He will test you with more than you can handle. Why? To show that you're not God. He will put you in circumstances. And and this word here, test and temptation, means to examine the quality of. And see, God is putting us into situations that will test our faith. That's what James 1 says, why we can count it all joy, because we know the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And so that testing shows, man, we don't have what it takes. And so God has to continue to work into us. But he will provide a way out of the temptation. He will deliver us. He'll always provide a way out. So we don't get to choose what we're tempted by, but we do get to choose whether or not we want to take his way out, whether we want him to deliver us or not. But here's why I'm stressing on this. And now I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. The reason why I'm pushing on this a little bit is because a lot of us think that when our father leads us into testing, he doesn't love us. We question the affection of God for us when he exercises his authority over us and leads us into circumstances that are not pleasing to us. But here's what I want you to see, the father heart of God. Again, Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, your father knows how to give good things. That word there, good things, I want you to understand, it can be used in three different ways. It can mean pleasant, Your father knows how to give you pleasant things. It could be valuable. Your father knows how to give you valuable things. And valuable things primarily are relationships. This is why at the end of your life, no one sitting on their deathbed says, will you just roll in my flat screen TV? I need to give it a hug one more time. (laughs) 
No, it's you want your family. Why? Because relationships are the most valuable thing. So that word, they're good things, pleasant, valuable. Now, this is the third one of what I want to highlight, useful. How much more so does your father who in heaven know how to give useful things to those who ask? Now, here's my point. Useful things are not always pleasant. Are they? In fact, almost always (laughs) useful things aren't pleasant. And the reason why useful things aren't pleasant is because they put us into circumstances that we just don't, that are uncomfortable. And the reason why I'm harping on this, because as you're about to see in God, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, God will put you into circumstances that are useful for you, but are not pleasant for you. And that's what we call testing. So look at this, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse three. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, most think it's Paul, but he says this, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the writer is saying, hey, when you're struggling, and that word there, struggle, is the Greek word antagonize. It's where we, we just brought it over into English, and it means to have conflict with. When you're struggling with your sin, consider him, who obviously is ter- talking about Jesus, who the whole book of Hebrews is saying he is a better high priest. So he says, consider him who endured such hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this is what I... I want to push a little bit because a lot of Christians are confused by this. But the reason why the writer of Hebrews is saying consider him is he's saying, listen, what happened to him to a point is going to happen to you. And this is what amazes me. And I've got to be honest, I don't mean this insensitive in any way. But again, I want you to think differently. I want you to think rightly about God. It amazes me that Christians are surprised when they suffer when the very God who was crucified them, Christ, suffered. And if you have the word Christian, what that means is you're like Christ. And so I don't want you to think that if you're suffering, that that somehow means that God doesn't love you because would any of you say that the father didn't love the son when he was suffering? You say, well, if he really loved him, he would have spared him from that suffering. Well, obviously, we don't have the right understanding of love. Even the writer of Hebrews, it's a weird verse, says that the son, Jesus, had to learn obedience through his suffering. And so here's what I want us to see. We can't be surprised, as Romans 8 says, don't be surprised if something strange were happening to you. You will Suffer, you will struggle, you will be tested. Why? Look at the next few verses. Verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he what? Let's try that again. The Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves and chastised every son whom he receives. Now he's quoting Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. So he's referring back 
to what God said in the Old Testament, and this is why it bugs me sometimes, and I'm not being mean, but when people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is just angry and wrathful, the God of the New Testament is love. No, the God of the Old Testament is the Father, just like the God of the New Testament is the Father, and he hated sin just as much as he did then, as he does now, then he punished them, now he punishes Jesus. Same God. Back then, he was just as much of a father. Why? Because we read verses like this in Proverbs 3. Do not disregard, do not take lightly the discipline of God. Why? Because he disciplines those he loves. Now, this is where we wrestle. He disciplines those he loves? Yeah. So you could say it like this. If he didn't discipline you, he doesn't love you. You want to know the distinguishing characteristic of someone who is a child of God and someone who is not? We always think, well, God loves me, or I have faith. The distinguishing, how you know, is those who are disciplined by God are his kids. Those who are not are not. In fact, look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse eight, if you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate, that word means not lawful. Now, again, think about this. He says, in which we've all participated. I've got two kids. And my kids, let's just imagine that they're out there in the lobby and there's a bunch of people around. There's going to be a bunch of people that are going to be affectionate to my kids, saying high five, give them a cookie, whatever, loving on them. But how do you know that I'm their dad and not another dude? It's not by the quote unquote gifts that they're given. It's by the discipline. Because no other dude out there can discipline my kids because they're my kids. They're not his kids. And let's be honest. Have you ever been around a, a, a crowd of people and someone disciplines your kids and you didn't give them the authority to do that? Isn't that annoying? Like, bro, that ain't your kid. That's mine. You don't have the right to do that. Now, if another father gives me the right, just the other day, picking up one of Jackson's friends, he's spending the night with us, and his father told his son in my presence, hey, at his house, you listen to his rules, he has the right to discipline you. But I don't have that right unless his father gives it to me. So the way that you know that my two kids are my kids is because I disciplined them. That is the distinguishing characteristic that you know, okay, those two, it's not just they look like me because my daughter was adopted. She don't look like me. Thank God, blessing her, right? But, <laughs> but you know she's my daughter because I discipline her as a father. And why do I discipline her? Because I love her. Let me say it to you like this. Do you know how much I would have to hate my kids to not discipline them? I would have to hate my children. Now, my children think I do hate them when I am disciplining them, <laughs> but I'm not. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is not anger. I get angry because of love. The opposite of love is indifference. If I didn't care about my kids, if I said, go do what you want, Play where you want. Go with who you want. 
That would be me hating them. But it is my responsibility granted to me by the Father. I am a delegated authority in my child's life to help them understand that they are going to be disciplined, but it's for their good because I love them. So if I didn't discipline, I'd hate them. And if I didn't discipline, I'd hate the rest of the world because I was creating kids that everybody else would be like, those kids are spoiled brats. So I do it because I love you too. <laughs> Trying to create a, a society that actually functions pretty well. And this is why I'm stressing this because a lot of times we think the exact opposite when it comes to God. When God is disciplining us, when God is testing us, when God is putting us through the ringer, we say, God, I thought you loved me. But what I'm telling you and what Hebrews is telling you is in those moments, you gotta trust the father heart of God because he knows something that you don't know about yourself. That the blessings he wants to bring in your life, your character can't hold them. God wants to bless you, but he knows if he gave it to you all now, you would squander it. Think the parable of the prodigal son. So God is testing you. God is disciplining you, not because he doesn't love you, but in fact, because he loves you deeply. Now, Hebrews continues, look at this, verse nine. It says, by this, we, had, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us uh, and we respected them. Shall we not much more? Same, same exact word as Matthew 7, 11. How much more your father in heaven knows how to good, give good gifts? Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits, that's all human spirits, and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as, they, as it seemed best to them. But listen to this. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's why I highlighted that word, good things, things that are pleasant aren't always useful and things that are useful aren't always pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You wanna know why God disciplines you? The reason why God disciplines you is because he wants you to partake in something that you couldn't if you hadn't been disciplined. He says, so that you share his holiness. That's a preposition of purpose. The reason why God is doing it. The reason why God is doing it is because our good. And oh, at the moment, it seems painful. I was telling Lindsay this last year when we were going through a time in our life was strictly God disciplining us. And I referenced John 15 where Jesus talked about he's the vine, we are the branches. And then Jesus in that chapter remarkably says this, the branches that don't bear fruit, he cuts off and throws into the fire. That's a reference to hell. The branches that do bear fruit, he cuts back. So they'll produce more fruit. And in an observation of that, I told Lindsay, I said, you know what? When you're the branch and you're being cut on, you don't know if you're being cut off or cut back. It feels the same, doesn't it? It feels the same. 
And God's the gardener and he has the divine right to cut any branch off he wants. And when God starts cutting on you, you're like, God, what are you doing? That is painful, that hurts, I'm in shock. And the only difference between being cut off and cut back is what it produces. But it feels the same, painful. So I told Lindsay, man, I feel like I'm being cut off. But then I said, but I know the heart of my father and I know he's just cutting me back. And hear me, the only reason why he's cutting me back is because he has already grown fruit and he wants to grow more. That's what he says there. It will yield the fruit of righteousness. My friends, even in God disciplining you and cutting you back, it's for your good. Why? Because he knows it's gonna produce something in you that enables you to partake in his holiness. Let me say it like this. When you're saved, you are made righteous. The Bible says we are the righteousness of God in Christ, which means God gives us his righteousness. We give Jesus our sin. So we have right relationship with God. We can talk to God now, but we are not in our final state. We still have to be what is called sanctified, which is being made holy. And so when God saves us, we are now in right relationship with him, but we cannot handle all God has for us. And so he has to go through the process of disciplining us because he wants us to share in his holiness. And you need to understand something about the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the primary characteristic of who God is. This is why anytime an angel shows up, they bust out in song and say, holy, holy, holy. And they do it three times. And the reason why we know that that is important is because the Hebrew culture didn't use adjectives like we do, like very and those kinds of things. They would repeat it but they would never repeat something three times if it wasn't referring to God. They just say, holy, holy, because only God is holy, holy, holy. But anytime the angels show up and you see this in Isaiah six, they start singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. And it crushed Isaiah. See, Isaiah couldn't take part in that. So Isaiah needed God to take the coal, touch his lip so that he could partake in something. But can I just tell you, when that coal touched his lip, it hurt. It hurt, it was painful, but it was producing something. And it was producing something in Isaiah just like it was producing something in us, just like it was producing something in Job. Everybody hates to read the book of Job, don't they? You wanna know why? Because Job was an upright man. Job had done nothing wrong to deserve what he got. And we struggle with that. But his kids die, his stock, not his, you know, like 401k, like his livestock, you know, all gone. And you know what? God said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? And then Satan who tempts in the middle of God's testing says, well, he's only praising you because you kept his hand, your hand on him. You take all that off, you take all those gifts away, he'll curse you. And God says, okay. And even his wife says, curse God and die. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept the good things from God and not the 
bad. And for 40 chapters, God is silent with Job to the point where he's sitting in a cave, scraping his skin with broken pieces of pottery. His friend's telling him, you must have done something wrong. And Job's like, I ain't done nothing wrong. This is not for my sin. And then God finally speaks to Job. But you know what's remarkable? Again, this is why we hate the book. God never told Job why. Never. You know what God did tell Job? I'm God. He said, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? Where were you when I created the horse? That's a pretty magnificent creature. Where were you when I did all this? Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Where were you? And then Job's, Job, 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 Job speaks back, I didn't know what I was talking about. And then God restores all of his fortunes. Never explains why. Here's what I'm saying to you. God has the sovereign right to give and take away. God has the sovereign right to discipline as he sees fit. But you can believe the promise of Romans 8, 28, that he is working all things, good and bad things, for your good. That doesn't mean that the bad things are somehow good. No, they're bad. They're evil. But even in those things, God is working something that will enable us to partake in his holiness that we could not have done had we not gone through it. So I'm saying to you, when you are struggling, agonizing, you can trust the heart of your father, that he is only working in you for your good. And if he wasn't working in you through those things, then you're not his kid. Last two verses, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That word there, weak, is the Greek word where we get our English word paralyzed. Isn't suffering paralyzing? Isn't testing paralyzing? You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know who to talk to. When you're going through this testing, it's paralyzing because your knees just got cut off, right? But the Bible says, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What that means is God's taking you somewhere. And where he was taking you, he had to take your knees out first because you would have walked with a strut. Now you're gonna walk with a limp, but you're gonna be healed. Why? Because God is not a mercenary who wields a machete on you. God is a surgeon who wields a scalpel and he's only cutting out what he knows will kill you. But when you're cut, it hurts. But God cuts to heal. So know that your father loves you and he wants to give you good gifts. But know that he also wants to give you guidance in the form of his discipline. And what I'm saying to you is don't just love God for his gifts. Also loving for his guidance. Let's pray. Father, I... Thank you for your love. You loved us so much 
that you not only sent your son, but you're still actively working to make us like him. But God, we confess this. We're struggling. It hurts. But by your spirit, God, would you help us to know that none of this is outside of your hands? That you're cutting us back because you want us to bear more fruit. But God, there are some people that you're not just cutting back, you're cutting off. And you're cutting them off because they haven't bowed the knee to your son, Jesus. They're not connected to the vine. And so God, I pray right now for anybody listening or watching that is not saved, I pray that you would save them so they can relate to you as a father. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. There's never been a point in time in your life where you have trusted Jesus, where you have been saved, that first forgiveness, where you were made right, where you became a child. If that's never happened, the Bible says simply, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, we'll be saved. But understand something. It's God who does the saving, who opens your eyes to see the truth, who overcomes your resistance, and your prayer is simply your response back to his initiative in your life. So if you feel like God is moving and you haven't trusted him and now you want to respond back in faith, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. To yourself, not out loud, if you wanna trust Jesus, it goes like this, say, God, thank you for loving me. You sent your son Jesus in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I believe that Jesus is the only way I give you my life. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed with me and trusted Jesus, I want you to do one thing. Would you just simply lift your hand up so we can know that? Thank you. Thank you. We got some men and women who are going to walk around, put a gift in your hands, a Bible, some next steps from us, because we want you to know this God whom is now your father. So when you get that, you can put your hand down. But then I want to do something a little bit different than the other services. I wrapped up this prayer time and just praying for those of us who do know Jesus in a way that says, I'll accept your discipline, God. But I want to do something a little bit different. I want to pray specifically for you. So if you're here and you know you're a son, you know you're a daughter, you're a child of God, but he's just been cutting you back in some very painful, painful ways. And your hands are drooping, your knees are weak. You don't know if you can move feel paralyzed. I just want to pray for you. 
So if that's you, again, nobody looking around or talking, would you just simply lift your hand up if that's you? You've just been going through some stuff. Thanks, thanks. Hands going up everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I just pray for these men and women who are your children. It is so natural for us to question your love for us when you discipline us because it's painful. But God, would you help those who raise their hands to know that even though it's so painful, even though they've experienced loss, that all that came through your hands. None of it is random. It is all working for an end, which is to their good. And we won't know why fully, but we can trust you with it. And so God, would you yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness in them? Would you strengthen their weak knees? Would you help them to get up and walk and not be paralyzed? And know that you're gonna make their path straight. And in that journey, you will heal them. So God, we just pray specifically for an extra measure of your grace. Because God, I too would raise my hand. But what enables us to sleep at night is knowing that you're not sleeping. And you are sovereign, you're in control, you're in authority over us. So no matter what comes, we will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So I pray that for my friends, for my family. Thank you for loving us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.